Welcome to the Everything Building Envelope podcast. On this show, we discuss topics relating to the exterior building envelope, such as waterproofing, glazing, cladding, roofing, and more. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For previous episodes, show notes, and bonus video content, check out our website, everythingbuildingenvelope.com. Now, here's your host for the Everything Building Envelope podcast, Paul Beers. Hello, everybody. This is Paul Beers. Welcome back to the Everything Building Envelope podcast. We've got a really interesting guest today, an old friend of mine, Rick Chitwood. Rick and I have known each other probably for longer than we care to admit. Welcome, Rick. Morning, Paul. How are you? Really good. Thanks so much for coming on this morning. I know we've got a lot that we can talk about that'll be of great interest to our audience. So Rick and I, just to give a little background, we've worked on a lot of high-rise condominium projects in South Florida over the years. The one that we just finished was was called Mansions at Aquilina. It's a 47-story building right on the ocean, one of the finest buildings in the world, residential buildings in the world. How tall was that building, Rick? 549 feet. I mean, 649 feet, sorry. Yeah, which is as tall as they'll let you build there. And then what's the new project that's coming up? It is called the Estates at Aquilina. It is two 649-foot luxury condominium towers and a villa, what we call the villa which is a $50 million five-story clubhouse, which has our amenity packages. We are offering as an amenity packages we call Circus Maximus, which has a skating ring, bowling alley, you know, flight simulators, car simulators, golf simulators. We're actually are going to have a surf wave pool, slides. It's going to be more of a resort condo destination. It's a new twist on high-end condo living on the ocean in South Florida to where you don't need to leave the confounds of your condominium. Wow, that sounds really cool. Sounds like fun, actually. So there's a lot involved, obviously, with putting up a a 50-story building, luxury building in South Florida. And I know that, you know, you've been at ground zero the whole time. In fact, I remember... Back, when did we start mansions at Aquilina? Do you remember when, when the construction began? Uh, it was 2013, please. Yeah, 17. Yeah, so. It was open about a year. About 2013, we actually had the Matt Foundation, I believe. Yeah, and I remember I was in your office a couple years before that. And this was when things were still really, really slow from the great construction slowdown or what I call the construction depression. I remember asking, you were showing me the plans for the building. I remember asking you, are you really going to build this? And sure enough, you did. In fact, it was probably one of the first buildings out of the ground after the big slowdown. Yeah, exactly right, Paul. We were probably the first to get the jump on the new upswing. It ended up being very very profitable for us. We sold the building out quite quickly. So, hey, sometimes you make the right choices. Yeah, and the units went for some real serious money. Probably set some records, didn't it? Yes, it did. Uh, you have to realize we do turnkey construction now. That means you get all your floorings. Everything is done down to a, we give you a Fendi furniture package. So all you got to do is bring your suitcases and come in. Uh, you know, we used to build what we call condo ready. Usually all you got was a finished unit, but no flooring and stuff. So once you 
close, it took you since six months to finish your unit. But now it's just like going to a showroom. If you walk in and buy a unit, you want it. it you can customize it. We have packages. It's a new concept, but it does add a lot of time and effort because you're moving probably twice as much material into the building. How many units in mansions? A uh, total of 81. So you basically had 81 different things you had to do, too. It doesn't make things a lot more complicated, have 81 different finishes? It can be. What we really learned was how important vertical transportation is in these high-rise buildings. We actually did a forensic study with another consultant, and we interviewed all the subs, all the change orders, all the consultants, tried to find out what we did wrong because we don't want to do it again. And so the two number one things for most subcontractors and general contractor was vertical transportation, because my guys have to wait forever to get up and down the building, and parking. As you know, in South Florida, especially in Sunny Isles, parking is a premium. Busing workers is not always attractive to some of your high-end workers. The two number one concerns that we got from all our exhausted interviews. Every one of every person had that same two items as number one item. So have you figured out a fix for that? Yes. First off, we'll use more buck hoist, and we'll use high-speed double-railed hoist. You know, the industry has been looking at the elevator. People have been trying to sell this idea they, that you can move the inside cars with the building, and you can use them at, but I haven't heard anybody successful with it. It needs a few more years to be perfected. But that would help because then you could use your interior cars, you know, four or five elevators, plus your outside cars. To me, right now, we looked at it and we've talked to a couple of people that tried it. It's a little too risky and not you're not getting the returns you need yet. But it will come in the future, I think. It's almost like building the elevator in stages as you go up the building. So let's say you get to the 20th floor, you're using the elevators already to the 15th floor. Pretty interesting concept. Yes, it is. I, I know in construction. And you've got all these things to deal with, like stuff coming down from above and whatnot that you have to worry about. If you think about it, I guess it does make sense. You've got the, you know, the infrastructure there. Why not use it? Yeah, absolutely. It makes some sense. I got a little bit ahead of ourselves here, I and I wanted to tell everybody you know, a little bit more about you. So you work for the Trump Group, and just to let everybody know, I know you're sick of hearing this probably, but it's not the Donald, it's a, a different Trump. So maybe you could just kind of tell the listeners a little bit about your, your background and, um, you know, what brought you to where you are today. Okay. I was born, raised here in Miami, South Florida, North Dade, a little section of town called Ogis. My dad was a general contractor, him and his brother in Miami called Chitwood Construction. They did some high rises here in Miami. They also did the some high-rises in the Bahamas, and we did some high-rises in New Orleans. So I was raised in construction. I started when I was 12 on the sites on the weekends. My dad had me straighten nails and put them back in the box. He was a little brutal. But then uh, by the time I was 18, I was a full-fledged journey union carpenter. They had a little problem putting me in at, at a young age of 15, but my dad, being a contractor, was able to pull some strings and I was able to get a good training uh, through the apprenticeship program. And then working up through the industries, I've worked for a lot of very large developers in South Florida. I have done some building in upper state New York and Long Island for the holiday group, some large housing projects and some other projects. Most of my construction has been here 
in Miami, in South Florida. Like I say, like you and me, we worked together. At, I was at the Ocean Club with the 11 builders. I was there nine years with Mr. Hansen, the developer. And I am presently now with the Trump Group, Vice President of Construction, Director of Development. And I've been here about 12 years. As you know, the original Aqualina project, which is a five-star Forbes hotel and condo. And that's our first project. It's a 52-story building, but it's a 100 foot shorter than the new building. The new building is the mansions, which is a 649. And now we have our new project coming up in the end of this year, which is the estate. We also do building in California and New York. But I've been with Jules and Eddie Trump for the last 12 years, and uh, they're a pleasure to work for. Great. So you have a, um, you know, it's interesting to hear that your father was in construction. Now your son, Rick Jr., has a prominent role also. So it's kind of a generation to generation thing, isn't it? Yes, uh, it is. Uh, my son actually works for me right now. He's basically our field project manager, kind of runs the site stuff, and I keep the legal the paperwork, permits, and the rest of the stuff going. Uh, then I have uh, Eric Bartos, one of the top estimators, I think, in town that, as you know, Paul, does my numbers work. Yeah, Eric's great. We all worked together down at the Ocean Club job way back when. So you've got a, a very impressive team. You're right, Paul. I believe in teamwork, being an Airborne Ranger, serving in Vietnam. I, uh, I build strong teams, and uh, nothing gets done without a team, as you know. And so my team, we stuck together. Uh, we've been around. Uh, most of my guys have been with me at least 15 to 20 years. Yeah, and, that's, and, and something is as complicated as these really tall buildings on these really tight sites with these very demanding specs and owners and everything else. I mean, you've, you've got to have the A-team or you're never going to pull it off. You're correct. So let's talk a little bit about building these really tall buildings on really tight sites in South Florida. Let's talk a little bit about the code, the South Florida Building Code. It's unique, and uh, how does that play into all this with having to you know, build these really ultra-luxury buildings? What's the developer's role with, and how the building code works with it? Well, over the last couple of years, we have informal meetings with most of the top developers in South Florida. We have a, a roundtable session, usually every two months or so, I started these to try to, I hate to let people make the same mistakes I made, just because I made it, you know, I keep telling these guys, yeah, we're like, almost like professional coaches, we, you know, have different teams, and we do different projects, but we all have the same problems, so we should share those problems, why should we all make the same mistakes over and over again, so I've been really successful with that, and me being who I am, because I do all my own permitting and government approvals through all the federal, state, and uh, local governments for all my projects. I am also very strong in the developing of the Florida Building Code, which you know is forever changing. So we review all the changes, and if necessary, I contact the other developers and the home building associations, and we negotiate with the state to change language or tweak the code to where we think it needs to be. What we are noticing is we think it's an important step for us to get it, everything in writing because, as you know, the industry, a lot of people and the uh, people we deal with every day and have been for years are getting like me. It will get older and not going to do this forever. So there's a whole new generation that has different ideas and different ways of doing things. 
So some things, you know, we take for granted. Uh, we can't do that anymore. We need to get them in writing so we're covered. Protect ourselves against, you know, high expense and uh, construction costs. Just lately, we fought two different fights here. They were trying to get seismatic into the South Florida building code. Well, we're in a zero zone. There's really no history of ever having a quake. They've had one reading, but they think it was actually dynamiting of mines out in the west. So, you know, we fought that, and we won. They have not, they kind of stopped up north of uh, Ocala. That was started by a building official in Jacksonville. I guess they might get a tremor there once in a while. But we fought that. Uh, again, lately, they wanted to put snow loads in South Florida building codes. Well, all <laughs> of this stuff, I mean, that's, to me, is ludicrous. I, mean, I don't even know why, how it even got on the agenda, but it did. And if it would have got passed, it's just adding costs that's not necessary to the cost of building, which, and in turn, I pass on to my consumers. So I'm not only protecting myself, I'm trying to protect the consumer. And so I find these groups that we've been doing help a lot. Uh, I've learned a lot of things to apply to my new building from guys' experience and the problems they're having on their projects, and they've gain the same from me. We here in South Florida, I don't know how many people know about it, we use a lot of CPVC for fire sprinkler. There's been a lot of claims and there's a lot of problems with the product. Uh, we had a major issue on one of our projects and we have learned we do not use CPVC for fire sprinkler anymore. We only use steel. The only person that really saved was me because it's cost efficient than plastic, but once you've been through one of these failures, it's not cheaper. So now we'd rather pay up front and know that we do not have these problems. And we passed all that information along to the other developers and share these same ideas. You know, once I started with Jules, and I learned it through John Henson at the Ocean Club, I believe in a good neighbor policy. You know, I try to stay in contact with my neighbors because construction is nasty, it's dirty, and it's an inconvenience. So you, the more you can soften this up with your neighbors and your city, the better off you are. We have a real good working relationship with local governments. It, it's important. You need to know who and what you're dealing with. What are some of the big challenges that, that you see with the building envelope? As always, window openings. You know, you're my window consultant. Actually, you do my window roofing and waterproofing and have for years. And all three of those are, as you know, major issues. And for people that don't know South Florida and the condominium, we have what we call a 558, which every condominium files, which means you turn your plans and specs over to the association. They hire an independent engineering firm and come and inspect your documents and all your building and list any and all discrepancies they find. So. It's a big process. Usually one of them is about the size of a phone book time you get a high-rise of this size. So the envelope of the building is one of their primary points, you know, from stucco to windows, especially any type of water infiltration. And here in South Florida, as you know, is a big item to us is waterproofing. We've learned through the years not to value engineer water. Be prudent, but... Don't, don't overvalue engineers, especially your building envelope items. 
especially waterproof. Talking about the, the Florida Statutes, Chapter 558 claims, and you said, you know, it had a chuckle. I know it's not funny at all, but I had to no. chuckle about the phone book of alleged defects. How many of those are, are real at the end of the day? I would bet you that at least 65% are real, you know, because construction is not exact science, as you know. Measure every tread riser in a 52-story building of the stairs going up, and you've got an eighth-inch plate. It's pretty hard to build sometimes to that, but it's a requirement. So they'll catch anything and everything. A lot of them, uh, you know, you just negotiate out because they're not worth handling. And the forensic engineers are very good. And we try to keep up on what they do. One of their big issues is post-tension cables and how they are terminated and patched and all of that. They actually chip pockets out, measure and all that. And if they find some wrong, they would make you chip every post-tension pocket on the building. Well, as you know, that could be 50,000, 60,000 you'd have to chip on the exterior of the building and fix. So being prudent as we are, we hired, a, again, another consultant to come out and privately inspect the cable systems so I can protect myself a little bit. We've learned now that one of their new tricks is they'll go into a unit, finished unit, when they're walking it, they'll turn the air conditioning up, Real down, real low, get the whole unit real cold, turn the air off. Then they use infrared cameras to camera the walls, and they measure the screw spacings. And if the screw spacings don't match the NOA or the specs for that installation, guess what? You'll be going adding screws to finish walls if units with people living in. So, you know, we look at every two years or so, they'll get a hot item, something new they can do. You know, they just follow it through. So, you know, we during our developer meetings, I guess one of the things I talk to guys about, hey, they're going to come after your post-tension. You're better off spending money up front, get it right. Because if you've got to, Paul, as you know, anytime you've got to return and swing a building and start chipping on the outside, it's expensive. You don't have happy people inside the building either. Oh, no, you sure don't. You sure don't. So when you got all these defects that you have to deal with, how do you make them go away? Well, subcontractors and having it first I go to as you know we use general contractors we don't self perform we go to our general contractor and he goes to his subs and uh, luckily I in fact as you know I you did some work for us on our project a little north of here uh, Luxura in Boca I just finished that 558 report and it's completely signed off like I said they'll, they'll bring the subs back if it's wrong they got to fix it I mean they usually they don't squabble the, the bad part is you know during the turndown a lot of subs went away, but even with Aqualina, I have some issues, and subs aren't there anymore, so that presents a problem. But if you use a reputable general contractor in his contract, he knows because he knows he's been if he's been in South Florida very long, he's been through a men what we call the condo wars, so he's quite a used to what's going on. And then of course, Paul, there's always a little negotiation of you know maybe I'll paint the building again. That's what I did at Luxura. Because as you know, that building got caught in the turndown. So I sales dropped off. So I had so many units. It took me, you know, like eight years to close out before I could even get the turnover. So the building needed to be painted anyway, just by longevity. So, you know, we painted the building and I put some new cooling towers on it. And now I am released. And so it's at least signed off and it's completed. It's a long process, though. 
and expensive. And the alternative is to have a big fight and get the lawyers involved, and, and then nobody wins. Then nobody, and you go to court, you'll probably spend more in legal fees than the whole thing would cost you anyway. I put in my budget for just like a building we, we just finished here for turnover of $750,000 that I, the owner, will spend to get out of it, you know, to yeah. mitigate my problems. Because now, you know, with these reports, if it's not a construction defect, it can be a design defect, you know. So that's another issue we deal with. A lot of times we can deal with that in different ways. Yeah, it's pretty complicated. You probably spend a lot of time in litigation like that because I know you're a consultant, so I'm sure you go through a lot of this with these guys, with a lot of different developers. Well, you know, that's right. So we do expert witness work, and we see people, and I have to say, you handle it as well as anybody I've ever seen. And, and what, one of the things that, that you do is you just fix if, if it's something wrong, you fix it. You don't fight about it. You fix it. And um, so I, I see, you know, the, the good examples, and that's not easy. And then we get involved on the other end where you have a developer that's maybe new to the process or, or maybe just, you know, doesn't get it, and, and they fight. And I'll tell you, don't, it, it ends up nobody wins in that, nobody at all, the, except maybe lawyers and, and experts. It's a process you've got to, you know, it's unpleasant. I know you don't want to spend $750,000 to you know, get through it, but you would spend ten times that much or more with a big yep. fight, and then and you know, sell your reputation, not you know, not have repeat buyers. I mean, there, there's a million reasons why it's worth you know, good money. Be, it used to be kind of practice years ago here for these settlements like this. You just write a check. Yeah, I, well, you know, I'll give you seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Just go away. You know, it, it, we've learned that that that's not the answer. I didn't buy it, you know, to where it doesn't meet code or doesn't work like it was designed, so why should I pay for it? I think my general contractor and subcontractors owe me what I bought, and that's, that's the way we went about it. Yeah, and kudos to you because, like I say, it's really a difficult process, and I've seen a lot of people do it, and, and as I say, you do it as well as anybody. A secret I did learn about it with these engineers is, you know, they always say this doesn't meet the code or this doesn't it doesn't do the attempt of the code. Here's what I tell them. Well, then I, I have to build what I have permitted. And it was approved by the building official. And he has the right to be the person at jurisdiction to interpret the code. And if that's the way he interprets it, and that's the way they permit it. That's the way I'm going to build it. So what I tell them is, I'm not going to even answer these. If you want answers to why you don't think it meets the code, you go talk to the building official and you find out. Because I have no choice but to build what's permitted. If you don't like his interpretation of code, I don't know what you do about that. You, I learned a long time ago, I spent a lot of money with architects and paying consultants and architects to tell them why it is it or isn't a code, I've stopped doing that. I'm not going to explain myself. The explanation is I built what is approved. I, I can't do anything different. So it's been a big help to me. Of That, that probably takes a, I don't know, a third, no, I wouldn't say a third, maybe an eighth of the items out of the report right off the bat. I'm just not going to address them. 
You go address them. Because they're trying to interpret the code differently than the building official, basically. Well, Paul, you know as well as I do, if I ask five people uh, to interpret the code, I'm going to get five different answers. Uh, people just read things different, and that's the way they see it. So uh, you're right. Yes, that's exactly my, my point. In fact, I guarantee you he doesn't see it the same as the building official. Yeah, so it's a fight nobody can, you, you can't, you can't win because... I'm not going to fight it. You go fight it. I don't need to fight it. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Let's talk about natural disasters a little bit. You know, I used to go to the um, National Hurricane Conference. I haven't been in a while, but I know you go every year. I know you've gotten some of their major awards for the work you've done with them. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that, and then we can talk about how it relates to the buildings? Yeah. Well, first off, I got started with, and you're right, I go every year. I'm going again this year because uh, I, I learn a lot. I take classes, and I talk to people, and it's a great place to network, as you know. Yeah. I got started with a Key Biscayne. It was a, you know, it's an island. They have uh, their own police force, their own fire department. They had a public horse department of about three people. So... I started an incentive with them to where I would supply all the manpower, tools, everything they needed from, again, a small building department. They had one plumbing, one electrical, one up, every inspector. I started a plan with them that in the case of a disaster, we would be their relief. We would help. I would bring in my architects. They could put one of their inspectors with four of my, let's say, my architect or my structural, whoever, they needed, let's say it was the electrical inspector that was with the team. Now I'd give an architectural guy, structural guy, a mechanical guy to walk the teams to do the assessments of the homes because you got to assess anything before you let anybody back. So that basically gave them, went from one team to five teams. And I could supplement them on equipment and manpower and all of that. And for that, there was a, you know, and at no cost. We did it at no cost to the city. It was a part of our good neighbor policy with Mr. Hanson. But what he also that allowed me to do is they gave me and my people and my workers the same pass that any other city employee had to let you back on the island. As you know, it's an island, so they just stop you at the bridge. Nobody comes or goes unless you have one of these. So what that enabled me to do was to get people into my project ahead of everybody else and take care of my problems. So it was a two-way street. I actually got the governor's corporate award that year for incentives on new projects. That was in 99. So that's what really got me started in enjoying what we could do to help each other during natural disasters, which in South Florida, as you know, is usually storms or flooding. I look to build to mitigate, as you know. All my buildings now, and I build in South Florida, all ground level penetrations, doorways, vents, everything gets flood barriers, flood proof barriers that we can install to seal the building completely. Even the garage entrance has a hydraulic steel lift door that seals off that garage where I can handle a flood surge up to about four feet and get no water in my building. We learn, as you know, Paul here, I can get a flash thunderstorm that could drop, I think the one that really got us, dropped 10 inches in like 10 hours. Well, Collins Avenue, FDOT, all the drainage systems, they were overtaxed, the water was everywhere. Well, it ran in 
to my Aqualina building and, you know, cause damage to some very expensive cars in the garage. So that's when we learned, okay, you don't need protection just for the big storm that you could plan on, but some for the one that comes, they tell you you got an hour or two, it's coming. Like with our garage barricades, they actually operate two ways. You can manually do them with a hydraulic or they float. If the water gets too high, it starts rushing too quick, it just floats up and closes itself. So if that flash flood gets in there and you're not ready, it'll kind of work by itself to help protect you. You know, even the other one, like you know, is wind. We, like we did at Missouri, and I try to do sometimes mostly, is the code only re requires, you know, large missile impact up to, what is it, 30 feet, I believe, Paul? I don't know exact measurement. Yeah, somewhere along there. But, you know, to me, okay, if I was a penthouse buyer and the guy downstairs had a, what I would conceive a better product, I'd be a little upset. So, to me, I, I just put large impact everywhere and everybody gets the same protection. Does it cost more? But I think it's prudent again. You know, I mean, with these storms, it, it's not, I'm not worried about something blowing from the ground up to the 15th floor, but I'm worried about that furniture and table on that 15th floor patio going through that glass door. So, you know, even you know, even though they're supposed to take it all off and all that, it just sometimes don't happen, Paul. So we try to mitigate everything that, like I can, that say there are natural disasters for South Florida. Why I go to the conventions, I'm looking for better ways and better ideas to mitigate water intrusion, wind damage, and those type of normal events. Yeah, as you know, we've been through some storms on some of our projects before. I remember at Ocean Club of Key Biscayne, they called it the storm of the century. It was a February yeah. storm that had hurricane-like effects. I remember getting a call from Tom Moses, who was, was your boss at the time, and he told, I think he said to me something to the effect of, I had six reports of leaks. This is, you know, we had 10 buildings. Yeah, yep. That's why it's important to have consultants because, listen, these guys in the field get paid to do a job. I'm sure most of them try to do the best they can, but I think the industry has lost a lot. You know, once uh, there's not really an apprenticeship program for very many people today, uh, it's just poor training. I mean, guys are, it's not the A team installing your windows, let's put it that way. Well, that's why right. guys like you and even the waterproofer, how much do you think he pays that guy putting down that hot mix out there? If somebody's not watching, who knows if he's got the right mills or whatever. I mean, it's important to inspect and control the workers on site. And like with the waterproofing, to me, I mean, it's a crappy job. It's messy. It's hot. It's dirty. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, it's not a career path people are choosing these days. It goes along with your other one that you look at a lot, roofs. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be a roofer uh, in South Florida either. Even a roof consultant, you know, our guys that go up on the roofs, they get to a certain point and they don't ever want to go on another roof ever again. That's why our new drones are going to really help out because we can... Yeah, um, I, I, that's why I think, like you say, that's, you know, there's going to be a lot of changes coming in the construction industry, you know, and drones are, I think, a good one, especially for you, I would think, not having to put a guy on the roof to where he could get hurt, it's got to be a big asset to me. It's a game changer, not just the roof, but also the facade. You know, you think about 
all the effort and getting swing stages out there and, 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 you know, and you're talking about vertical access. So they're trying to do the work and then we need to inspect and things like that. If we can fly drones, we can cover a lot more ground, a, a lot less expensively with, you know, zero impact basically. As I don't know if I've told you this or not, but we've, you know, we're FAA certified and we've, we've already branded ourselves Air GCI and we're flying the drones already. And, and it's a huge, huge benefit for being able to cover a lot more area, a lot more cost effectively. It benefits everybody, especially our, our customers. When I build, I survey buildings on both sides, photographically, then I take, I set up settlement points. I mean, I try to monitor it. To me, it's to mitigate claims later. Uh, and, and I think, again, the drones will help that. I mean, I had to do it with high resolution cameras you know, and it, it works good. I mean, I can see a crack on a wall. I can zoom in on anything. I, again, for anything like that, for pre-construction survey of your neighbor's building, because you know it's going to be a claim when you're done. Always is, always will be. Uh, one thing we do, do a little different is we try to be proactive and get an agreement between us and our neighbors. You know, we know we're going to do certain things. We're going to get your windows dirty. We're going to get some concrete on your pavers and I'm going to wash about a thousand cars and things like that. Things you can't help building high-rise buildings close proximity. So I think drones are going to help a lot with, with that in the future too. It's exciting. So what other changes do you see forthcoming in the construction industry going forward? As you know, it's all electronic now. You know, guys can actually be in the field and have the plants on their iPad. They can... Uh, we can actually give them, uh, send them the RFI so they can read it on site. And electronics, everything, the BIM modeling, the 3 3D modeling on uh, designs and stuff. It, technology is, as you know, changing leaps and bounds, which is good and bad. The bad things is cell phone service. You know, I put a brand new building up and put a DOS cell phone system in the building. Well, the time I... When I bought it, the time I get it in, it's obsolete. I mean, we went from 3D to 4G. So, you know, like next time we're going to try a little something different. We'll put in the infrastructure, wiring, the cabling, and the piping and all. But don't buy any equipment or anything. Then you're ready to open. It's, and then it's probably only going to be good for a couple of years anyway. The big change in the construction industry that really hurts us is cell phones. You see more guys standing around on cell phones instead of working. I wish there was a way to limit that, but of course you can't. I mean, we built years and years. We didn't have cell phones. You know, you had either uh, radios, or if somebody really needs you, you had megaphones, so-and-so, or whatever. To me, if there's a way to control that, you'd probably get a lot more productivity, but I don't see how you do it. That's one of the fallbacks we see. I see it all the time, every day, somebody sitting around on their phone instead of working. I, they might be calling their office. I don't know. But I just, I don't know. When I see guys texting and playing games and stuff when they should be working, I, I think it's costing companies and people a lot of money of wasted time. Yeah, they're a big distraction. There's no question about it. And I never really thought about it. But yeah, I mean, people are doing Facebook or whatever when they should be installing things. And, and, and you know, they got that phone on and they, uh, you know, headphones on. You're really not hearing. You're not... You know, you're not looking, you're not aware of where you're at. And you're on a construction site. As you know, it don't take but one small thing, and it can kill you. 
I mean, it's a construction yeah. sites are dangerous dangerous places. You need to be aware and on top of your game when you're on site. That's my opinion. Could, could you ban headphones? Okay. Well, you know, we try to do a lot of things. Uh, we don't allow people to eat in the building because of rodent control in South Florida. Yeah, we do a lot of rodent control. I mean, I don't know. It's a lot of policing, you know. Yeah. One of the good things I see changing now is electronic, you know, for years, and we still do it today. Uh, every day the sub tells me how many people he's got on site. And because we have to do a manpower count, I, got, I like to track manpower to see how many, do I need more electricians? He's behind or whatever. Well, well, that guy can tell you anything he wants. I, I guarantee you don't go around count how many plumbers there are and all, you kind of depend on them. Well, now, if they all get badges and stuff, uh, uh, and if they come through the gate, it electronically reads them, tells you who it is. And the other thing is, which is kind of neat, it tells you when they leave. If the guy was supposed to, you know, if I paid him for 10 hours for the plaster to work two hours overtime, but his tag went out at 3.30, why am I getting charged for 10 hours? So that's one of the good things, because there's a lot of information with that badge, too. The name, who he works for, a lot more information, you know, it's just readily available to you. At some time, I wouldn't doubt, Paul, that you, the system would be able to tell you where he's at on the job. The plumber's supposed to be on the ninth floor. What's he doing on the 18th floor? You know what I mean? At yeah. some point in time, I think it's going to get that good, which I find is a helpful tool. Yeah, manage resources and make things more efficient. We don't even know what's coming. <laughs> you know, I know. That's, it's going to be... that's, the, that's the sad part. You're right. We can't even think about what's coming, I don't think. Yeah. It's coming. I, I love technology. It's intimidating, but, but you, there's some amazing things that, that you can do with it. And this geolocating and things like that are, are just, it's going to be mind-boggling. Artificial intelligence, you know, all these things that sound like outer space and sci-fi are becoming real. And... I think you'll always need people in the buildings to build them, but you can help them, you know, build better, basically. The iPads and the information you can get to the guy in the field, he ain't carrying around a roll of plans, trying to roll them out, you know? It's a pretty cool stuff. Yeah, because when he has to bring the plans, you know he's not going to do it. I mean, plans on these big buildings, you need a wheelbarrow, basically, to cart them around. So and they're changing can... daily. It's pretty hard to give a guy a new sheet every couple of days. It's just much better just update your internet, and boom, there it is. You got it. It was latest and greatest yeah of course again that again probably puts into the general contractor or even like you then you got to have it people that can maintain all this stuff for you that's a huge challenge i can tell you for us you know I mean, we we're using technology a lot you have collect all working all our data now on ipads which i can tell you mansions up until near the end we weren't doing that you know because the technology wasn't really right yeah we can deliver reports, you know, same day, next day, where it used to take us a week or two. We take pictures, we take photos, we go back to the office, write the report, match the photos. Now we can give a better report and we can give it real time, and it's really um, spectacular. It's important. Like you say, it used to take us a week, so that week there's nothing even getting done that you think about repairing. So I see that as a very positive move, too. Yeah, they cover up all the work, you know. Yeah. <laughs> got something. I they didn't get, get the window what he saw a week ago. You know, it's crazy. Exactly. Well, listen, Rick, this has been really, really interesting. I thank you so much for, for taking in the time. I know that the listeners are going to get a lot of good intel and really interesting stuff that we talked about. So thank you very much again for, for coming on. 
You're more than welcome, Paul. Thank you for all your support throughout the years. Yeah, no, it's been great. So I just want to remind the listeners that we have a newsletter, the Everything Building Envelope newsletter. And if you'd like to subscribe to that, all you need to do is text the word Building Envelope to 22828. So for the newsletter, text the word Building Envelope to 22828. And with that, I'll say goodbye. Um, Thank you, everybody, for listening to Everything Building Envelope podcast. Until next time, this is Paul Beer saying so long. Thanks for joining us today. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. For more information on the Everything Building Envelope, previous episodes, show notes, bonus video content, and much more, check out our website, everythingbuildingenvelope.com.